Hey y'all, you're listening to Dismantled, a podcast for intersectional environmentalists, activists, teachers, organizers, and change makers fighting for climate justice. My name is Deandra Marisette, co-founder of Intersectional Environmentalist, or IE, and today I'll be your host. Dismantled was born out of Intersectional Environmentalist, or IE, a digital platform with resources and action steps to help dismantle systems of oppression in modern environmentalism. Conversations about the climate crisis must address and be led by those most impacted by it, Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. This episode is sponsored by Mercy Corps, and today I'm sitting down with Vimaris Rivera, the program manager of Mercy Corps location in Puerto Rico. With 40 years of humanitarian work under its belt, Mercy Corps is rooted in community-oriented aid activation. As the climate crisis intensifies, Mercy Corps has made it a priority to partner with frontline organizers in support of the resilience and empowerment of worldwide communities against natural disasters and the long-term implications that they carry well after they hit. The team over at Mercy Corps believes that we can make a systemic difference if we organize from the ground up, which we're going to explore today. To learn more about their work with worldwide communities and how you can support, head to mercycorps.org. That's M-E-R-C-Y-C-O-R-P-S dot org. All right, let's get into it. So Vimaris, thank you so much for being here. You have such an incredible background. You've worked in environmental conservation and public policy and strategic planning within the nonprofit and government sectors for quite some time now. Can you tell us just a little bit about your journey and the experiences that made you an environmentalist? Sure thing, Deandra, and thank you so much for, for having me. Um, I was mostly influenced by, by my mom um, and how she viewed the, the world as a, as a biologist herself. Um, she really was my, my inspiration and in, in wanting to know more about environmental conservation. And I always knew I wanted to use my scientific training to give back to the community. Um, initially, I thought I would do this by becoming a research scientist and having my, my own lab. However, as I become and became more involved with science communication and outreach activists during grad school, my vision of how I could use science to make meaningful contributions expanded. And as an undergrad, I, I majored in environmental studies just to give substances to the issues that are continually significant to me. Um, despite discovering the pollution pandemic, you know, alternative energy and the roles communities can play in addressing these issues really fueled me and my desire to complement the broad spectrum of environmental studies naturally led me to this fascinating and intricacy of biology and limnology. That's what I studied in my grad school, and, and that is the study of inland aquatic ecosystems. Um, and the research for my graduate work revolved around the restoration of lakes. Um, and for three months, I joined a, a small science team in the rainforest near a village. And we repeatedly just took samples and analyzed them in the lab. And then I saw the need to break the cycle of segregated scientific inquiry just by engaging the community in my investigation and educating local populations about the importance of inland water conservation. And I sort of piloted uh, 
a citizen science program. And for those that maybe don't know and aren't familiar, um, citizen science is also known as community science and is sometimes described as public participation in scientific research. So the outcomes are often advancements in scientific um, research by improving um, scientific communities capacity, as well as increasing the public's understanding of science. So I remember debating about this with my, my research mentor because I wanted my thesis investigation to have an impact and community engagement was a critical component to achieve this. And, and, and it did really. And I began, um, to believe that we can and must use our, our resources effectively and responsibly in order to obtain the kind of economic and social sustainability that is necessary to lift our communities. And naturally on my return to my island, I decided to increase my commitment in the communities and become more informed about local community issues and just possible avenues for, for resolution. That's incredible. So it sounds like going back to your mom and your mom's background in science, how how young were you when you like properly acknowledged that oh, my mom's in science and that's incredible and I'm going to be in science as well? I was very young. Um, well, she started her, her degree when I was very young. I think I was maybe in first grade and I was just learning about biology in first grade as well. That's so, awesome. Yeah. You said that your degree was called, say it one more time for us. It was, is it well, biology? My, I studied conservation biology and mm-hmm. I, I, my expertise is on limnology. So I studied um, inland aquatic ecosystems and restoration. That's amazing. And it sounds like you were trying to embed this social, you called it citizen science, which is something that I have never heard of before. So is this, was this something that was missing from your studies? Like you kind of had to pursue it separately on your own. Yeah, I, I came from a very hard science curriculum in undergrad, you know, it was very focused on just, I think to prepare us for like a more um, lab research or, you know, environmental engineering. So it was very hard science-based. Um, and we rarely see science and scientists presented um, in a way that is relevant to our reality, you know, our cultural values and communities in schools or even in the media. And, you know, this lack of representation and accessibility of information and opportunities to contribute um, really further marginalized us from the process of science. And this experience about just embedding this citizen science really gave me a unique opportunity to apply my studies to a real life situation and vitally just help disseminate about environmental conservation in the community uh, directly impacted by that environment. So for example, you know, I saw that women who participated gained knowledge of water conservation and really led to a higher degree of activism and community resilience related to water. So it wasn't, you know, later that I began to understand the connection between resource conservation and community and economic resilience. That's incredible. And so you're a student, you're in school at this time and you're studying local water systems. And I'm I'm assuming you're uncovering some troubling things and you're wanting to bring it to the local community. What was it that you 
discovered and how did you even approach the community? Yeah, well, I discovered that, um, well, basically it was mainly around restoration of lakes. So the lakes were um, medium to low polluted, they were polluted. And I discovered that most of the villages surrounding my plot, my investigation plot, were using this resource, right? So I began to just educating them about like, why is it important for me to study these types of you know, environmental impacts and what is the impact related that is closely related to them and their well-being as well? Yeah, no, that's incredible. And it's so interesting that that, that your education was putting you right there in the midst of studying a water source that a local village or nearby villages were utilizing, but didn't encourage you or have you actively participating in the local community to just share what you were finding. Do you think that there is, or do you think the education system as a whole has this philosophical duty of sorts to embed what you called it citizen science into curriculums like yours? There is really a lack of representation and accessibility of the informations and opportunities that we as scientists work. And we need to help disseminate about this in our communities. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you at least were able to, in that moment, have, you know, be able to make those connections and decide, well, okay, if this isn't a part of my curriculum, then I'm just going to take what I'm learning and go have a conversation with the people who are being impacted by this water. That's incredible. And I do hope we start to see that um, embedded more in environmental science degrees as well. And that leads me to your work. I'm sure that played a huge part in what brought you to Mercy Corps. It sounds like you were able to find more of that human-centric approach and focus that you were previously looking for. And I was learning about your work and it sounds like now you're focusing primarily around climate resilience, um, which probably has uh, a tremendous amount of citizen science embedded within it. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to Mercy Corps and what exactly climate resilience work is for those who don't know? Um, I knew about Mercy Corps because of Hurricane Maria. And this hurricane really drew the, the largest response to a disaster in Puerto Rico's history, with aid coming from just several uh, recognized international NGOs. They were mobilizing to the island. But within the first weeks, um, Mercy Corps responded to the most um, immediate needs um, by, by distributing food, water filters, um, soda lanterns, and, and cash assistance to um, vulnerable populations. Um, but moving beyond emergency aid, Mercy Corps strategy aimed at early recovery, preparedness, and long-term resilience. Um, that's when I was hired as a program assistant and working on one of the biggest programs, which was the Resilience Hubs. And I later transitioned to my role in which I lead a portfolio of community economic recovery and climate adaptation programs. And I am very proud just to be a part of a global team of humanitarians that are working together on the front lines of today's you know, biggest crisis to, to create a future of possibility and, and where everyone just can prosper, really. Um, but to answer your question about what exactly climate resilience work is, well, at Mercy Corps, we define resilience or, or it refers to, to our approach of helping communities deal with all types of shocks and stresses. And climate adaptation is centered around increasing resilience to climate shocks and stresses specifically. So this means that communities are prepared for 
and can respond to extreme sudden um, onset hazards like floods, hurricanes, earthquakes, and tsunamis and others. Um, this also means that communities are aware of and can adapt to the shifting ecological and economic conditions that impact their lives, um, including climate change. And they are able to transform the norms, the values, and the support systems that enhance that long-term well-being. But what I want people to know about climate change resilience or climate resilience is that for many people, disasters aren't a one-off event, um, but more of an ongoing reality. And many families don't have the resources to properly um, prepare for a sudden onset um, storm and earthquake or, or others. Like an example, Puerto Rico is still recovering from previous natural disasters such as Hurricane Maria and the 2020 earthquakes. Energy, water, and telecommunications, as you may know, um, that infrastructure is still very weak. And, and then under the current circumstances, even a, a small category hurricane uh, would be devastating. But that's why we design for the future of storms and disasters. And um, we just don't respond to the current disaster. We work with the community to prepare for and reduce the risk of the next one. Yeah, it, it sounds like based on what I'm hearing and kind of what we're learning all the time as natural disasters become more frequent is that communities that aren't prepared, as you've, have you, as you've said, for natural disasters, um, it's almost as if, if if you don't have the proper tools and resources to be able to recover, you're only that much more worse off when the next one hits. So that resilience component is so important. And when you say climate resilience and we talk about like equipping people, are we referring to communities at large or leaders? And I wonder if we could even use Puerto Rico as an example. Um, how does climate resilience play into equipping communities to support each other in the process of maybe recovering and preparing for, as you said, this like ongoing reality. So since Hurricane Maria in 2017, we have been helping um, people better prepared for disasters by transforming local community centers into resilience hubs and equipping them with the skills and, and resources they need to help their community in the, event, in the event of a disaster. And this not necessarily includes community leaders, but also it involves community members as well. And many of these resilience hubs are the first line of response when an emergency strikes and, and their work is very strategic and essential. And without it, you know, community members would be left on their own when they need um, help the most. So these centers really serve as a meeting place where people living in that community perceive them as, as a support and as a facilitator um, in, in, a, in an emergency. And they really represent hope for, for the people who, who need it the most. So Mercy Corps equipped 17 resilience hubs with different combination of solar energy, potable water, storage, community equipment and systems, emergency kits, and disaster preparedness training. Um, disaster preparedness training really involved the community just working on community risk mapping, identifying vulnerable households in case of an emergency, identifying flood zones, for example, and, and creating contingency plans. And these resilience hubs are prepared to respond in any disaster and can support more than 100,000 um, individuals who are most affected in the, in the event of a, 
of a disaster. And they have also adapted all their processes to ensure safe health and hygiene practices, um, as well as help spread awareness of on COVID prevention measures uh, among communities. Um, so we've really seen how the community level impact of the Resilience Hub expanded and evolved in ways we could have not predicted. And some of the most impactful shifts are, are driven by our, our local partners. And one example th truly is um, Feca Transforma, which is a religious affiliated community-based organization on the small island of Vieques. And it has emerged as a leader among our Resilience Hub partners and has taken a number of independent initiatives that its leader, Pastor Rajoan, um, I hope he hears me some, someday, <laughs> um, um, says like he, he says that um, are directly inspired by Mercy Corps interventions. Um, and after months of extensive work on, on this community and, and house, household level of preparedness with Mercy Corps, they began to independently organize trainings for their broader community. Specifically, um, they have facilitated workshops on community level contingency planning, emergency backpack preparation, um, earthquake specific household emergency planning, and personal protection related to, to COVID-19. And in addition, after having been connected to a local fisher folk association based on the island of Vieques through Mercy Corp initiatives, they formed an independent alliance through which these fisher folks agreed to help with the transportation of goods to and from the island in the event of an emergency. And transportation between Vieques and the main island of Puerto Rico is one of the greatest challenges in the wakes of disasters. And because of Feque Transforma's initiative and proactive outreach, fisher folks in, in Vieques have been actively engaged in and are incorporated into the community level contingency planning and are prepared to support emergency response efforts moving forward. So what's interesting is that these inter-organizational relationships have expanded and evolved into a regional network of support, which is very positively impacting the communities and, and will be critical in the case of future emergencies and, and their road to recovery. That's amazing. It, it sounds like these resilience resource hubs that Mercy Corps is coming in and trying to build out is really creating a tremendous amount of agency for the community to just use the tools and resources that have been put in place and react and continually ongoingly respond and prepare themselves. Do you feel like this has been something that has been so beneficial just across the island? I think you mentioned so 17 resilience hubs? Yes, 17 resilience hubs. And it has been beneficial throughout our resilience hubs. They have been put into action in several several disasters, specifically during COVID-19. You know, they are prepared to support the communities that they respond to during these types of, of disasters. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And it, it sounds like these resilience resource hubs are pretty exhaustive in their in their impact or in the ways that they're able to support local communities. I'm wondering if you talked about a lot of really interesting ways to kind of prepare for maybe a post. A lot of people, I think, tend to have their heads wrapped around responding right after a natural disaster hits. But when you're kind of ongoingly, as you said, preparing for just like the reality of that way of life, 
You can be risk mapping, I think you said, which was really interesting, like proactively identifying which areas might be more vulnerable to flooding and things like that. But I'm wondering if there's aspects beyond that, like maybe even for small businesses and things like that, that have to recover and just kind of try and maintain some type of financial security and status quo. Are there any other uh, ways that resilience resource hubs help local communities in that way? Of course, yes. There is a a very strong component of resilience and sustainability. The managing community-based organizations have really demonstrated a a sustained commitment to supporting their communities and preparing for and responding to disasters. And we've seen this over the past two years. Um, They have been equipped with those skills and and infrastructure um, necessary to manage emergencies and, and service disruption. Um, especially um, the the community centers are, are like I mentioned, are equipped with these amazing infrastructure that enables them to provide that critical support and resources to surrounding community members. And this includes local 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 businesses. This includes um, government agencies. So they are very well established and, and well respected in their respective communities, and they are equipped to ensure. continued um, operation and and accessibility um, of programs and of training that revolves community preparedness and also business contingency planning preparedness, um, which is part of that resilience um, approach um, that we have done and and that we have regarded in in our capacities and interventions to, to contribute to those households or community resilience that are given in a set of shocks and stresses. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that that also speaks to kind of that ongoing aspect that you were referring to, because if you, if your local area is hit by a natural disaster and you have a small business and it's days, weeks, months before your community can truly recover or get back to, you know, a healthy status quo, what do you do if you don't have water, power, you can't run your small business. So yeah, I, I can see how the resilience hubs would play such an important part both during you know, the, a natural disaster to help the community respond appropriately and to help each other, but also just from an ongoing aspect as well so that we can start to you know, open up our small businesses and support our local communities. So that's, that's incredible. Um, and it must be really interesting having to come into this position. You said that this was kind of a new position for you and that you haven't been in it too long. So you kind of have been primarily focused on COVID for the most part, COVID-19 since you started. Is that right? Yes. Well, we're primarily focused on the, so we have two programs that are ongoing right now, primarily focused on COVID response. Uh, One of our programs addresses the urgent needs um, in the short term through cash transfer programming and for high-risk families. And, but we're also building community resilience in the medium term through economic recovery and, and education support to households and essential businesses that need it most. So we provided cash to um, families that were affected by the, by the COVID-19 pandemic. We also provided micro and small business disaster preparedness capacity building for an event of another disaster. Um, we also did community-led water, water sanitation and hygiene programs, community, we have leveraged our community-based disaster preparedness, and we have also worked with robust educational campaigns against COVID-19 disinformation. But as we continue to move forward and look forward to the recovery, 
to our recovery from Hurricane Maria, we are also supporting small and medium businesses owners um, that are vital for the long-term recovery of their communities. So really small and micro businesses have struggled to recover from Maria's economic consequences. Um, and according to our assessments, they are unprepared for, for future crisis, um, leaving just entire communities that are affected even more economically vulnerable. And although um, Hurricane Maria wreaked havoc across the island, um, Puerto Rico's eastern and southern regions were very disproportionately affected. And one of the programs that we are currently working um, will support the growth and success of small and, and new businesses through incubator and, and accelerator programs in Puerto Rico that will provide um, some free physical space and business resources and that will facilitate a shared collaborative environment which will give them access to mentoring services, professional networking, ideas that they can exchange and really just hands-on management training and workshops um, that will foster a preparedness and resilience mindset among these participants alongside with these concrete tools and skill set that together will help them ensure the sustainability and longevity of, of participants and, and their business endeavors in communities that are very, very much marginalized uh, when it comes to these types of programs. Absolutely. And it sounds like you know, I'm, I'm trying to put myself, you know, on the island right now and imagine that location on the island probably plays a huge part on what access you might have to resources. So I'm assuming that the resilience resource hubs, that even just like the placement of them and the location plays such a big part in deciding like how to optimize, you know, the, the impact that you can have for the island. It really is. And one of the criteria was um, was that that's basically we located some of the, the residents of our are very much located in the eastern and southern region of Puerto Rico, which is a very uh, disaster prone area. And so, yeah, our our approach was mainly focused on those regions that are more prone to disasters and future future emergencies. Yeah, no, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. Um, it Well, it doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense that areas that are most prone would be the least equipped, but I'm glad to hear that that's the work that Mercy Crips is doing to really focus those resilience resource hubs where, where they're needed most. And it sounds like they're having an incredible impact um, and really providing a tremendous amount of agency for local communities to you know, support one another during and in an ongoing way uh, as we continue to face natural disasters you know, more frequently. I think that for folks who maybe don't live near natural disaster prone areas, sometimes it's challenging to know how to best support all of these incredible efforts when disaster does hit. So how can people that are further from the impacts of natural disasters respond or best support folks in high risk areas like parts of Puerto Rico, Houston, Louisiana, and even globally? That's that's a great question, Deandra. Um, I think um, at the top of my head, it would be just to grow your knowledge, um, to continue to increase your understanding and knowledge of how the climate crisis disproportionately impacts these historically marginalized and overlooked communities. But it's important to keep in mind that impacts of climate change and climate-related disasters are, are not equal. 
and they disproportionately affect the most vulnerable and they exacerbate existing inequities. And you can seek more, more information about this at mercycorps.org or by checking us out on our social media channels at Mercy Corps and share this knowledge with your friends and families. Um, change always starts with um, one person, but together we, we have the power to reshape the world. And what's next is really up to all of us, even for, for daunting challenges like, like climate change, we have the power to reshape the world and just showing up, speaking up and standing up um, they are really important. And you all here today showing up to learn is, is critical as well. Also, um, I would like to point out um, to sign our petition in calling on the U.S. Congress and the Biden-Harris administration to take bold, urgent action to combat the threat of climate change and prioritize support for countries at risk and that are on the front lines of the climate crisis. And yeah, to also just donate to organizations like Mercy Corps that are bringing this approach to, to the front lines. That's amazing. Thank you for that, Vimaris. And it sounds like, you know, circling back to, you know, the origin story of your environmentalism, it sounds like you found your own way to share the information that you were learning. I think it's so important when we face really big questions like that to know that even if we're asking like, what is the answer globally, we still have to think locally. And I think that you, your story is such a beautiful example of how you were just kind of going about your studies and your life and you uncovered information, you shared that information and you helped your community build action steps. And I think that your story is such a beautiful example of that. And so I'm sure you've inspired plenty of our listeners today to go and do the same thing. I. I would love to end on, you know, we talk about this at Intersection Environmentalist a lot or IE, um, but I think there's no single answer, much like the answer to, you know, what the answer is to global problems. There's really no single answer. So we would love to hear from you. What does intersectional environmentalism mean to you? Well, I think that environmentalism is more than just advocating for, for saving the planet. Um, environmentalism has to be intersectional, meaning that it has to recognize that marginalized communities are and will be affected differently and often disproportionately by, by climate change and, and future disasters. And I'm going to use the, an example of Hurricane Maria. Hurricane Maria was among the worst natural disasters in Puerto Rico's history. And it illustrates some of the intersectional challenges faced specifically by, by women in rural communities during and after a natural disaster. And after the storm, women were hit the hardest when it came to recovering from the destruction. Women were usually the ones who spent hours just wringing towels by hand and hanging them to, to dry and carrying containers of water into the kitchen, you know, just bathing children in, in buckets or washing floors with rainwater collected in cans. And because they lived in rural communities, they have to travel further distances and, and they spend more time acquiring these resources. So climate change is making it harder to manage household responsibilities like cooking, cleaning, and, and gathering resources and, and caring for children, responsibilities that are primarily handled by women. And this is specifically felt in remote rural areas. And to me, intersectional environmentalism requires us to address issues with a different perspective and from all angles, 
in order to overcome the barriers created by climate change impact and address the roots of, of all injustices. And as a person that works in disaster response and environmental community-based programs, I know that intersectional, intersectionality must be considered when supporting groups most at risk in order to achieve a truly resilient community. Wow, that was a beautiful answer. Snaps to that. I love how you like took that question that sometimes people have like maybe a punchy statement answer to and you really just gave us a whole education in your answer. I thank you for painting that for us and you know special shout out to Kimberly Crenshaw for giving us this powerful lens of intersectionality so that we can empower our environmental advocacy. Um, I see that intersectional environmentalism in your story so beautifully, Vimare. So thank you so much for joining me today. And to everybody for tuning into this episode of Dismantled, you can learn more about our work on Instagram at Intersectional Environmentalist or on our website, intersectionalenvironmentalist.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Deandra Marisette, and thanks for helping us make a future that's intersectional. Mm-hmm.